Hey everybody, welcome back. I'm here with Ryan and Craig. I'm gonna do that. We'll do that over again. Sorry. Everybody, welcome back. Ryan and Chad are back here with Craig Tinney. Craig, what's up, brother? How are you? Good. How are you guys? Good. Thank you, man. Great. Good. Man, welcome Thanks for to having the show, me. Craig. I appreciate you guys having me. Thanks for your time. So, Craig, tell us, tell our viewers about you. What is who is Craig Tinney? What do you do? Where are you from? Give us all the good stuff. All right. Uh, born and raised Philadelphia, Montgomery Counties. Uh, after graduating, went into the Army, <clears throat> served as an infantryman for a little over four years, right around the time of 9-11. Uh, after getting out in 2002, um, bounced around from job to job. Uh, current, current day, uh, man, married, two kids, three kids, two boys and a girl, lovely wife. And uh, currently been dispatching for 911 from Montgomery County. This is going to be my 13th year. Wow. And here we are. That's awesome, man. And you're also uh, you're a volunteer in the critical incident stress management team, right? Uh, yeah, through my through my job, you never really understand what type of adversities face you. And I was uh, caught by stress. I was caught by burnout. And the critical incident stress management team with Montgomery County came in, kind of swooped me up, pulled me out of the hole. And then once they did that, they uh, offered me, recruited me, if you will. So uh, it's really no, no, it's the least I could do for these individuals is to give of myself and assist others where I was and where everything in my life put me to be. There's no other way that I can repay these folks by making sure that no one in the emergency management field, police, fire, EMS, dispatch ever get to the place or feel like I felt. Wow. So that's where I am with that team. That's awesome, Craig. And if um, if you don't mind mind me asking, I mean, we hear a lot about the police officers, the firefighters, the soldiers dealing with the PTSD, the stress and all the troubles that come along with that. But I think we often overlook what the call takers go through and actually what they have to deal with as well. So would you mind sharing, you know, what led you kind of to that stress and that, that, that burnout from, as, from the call taker's perspective? Uh, sure, absolutely. So it's kind of a funny dynamic when you witness it from the room as far as being a dispatcher goes. Uh, you send your officers out. And if you gentlemen are officers in one department, we, may get, we get a call for you guys. We send you guys out. You guys go. You may be on that call for five minutes. That call could be so critical that it takes up your entire shift. You're just dealing with that individual but uh, or that, that incident, so you could say. For dispatch, we're giving you guys that incident and then the other department next to you, their incident, and the department next to them, their incident. I mean, if you're, if you're accountable for 40-plus departments, you have your hands in every single incident that's going on, regardless of how small or how big. So I think that one thing that gets overlooked is because once, once, the, once the responders arrive on scene, uh, that, that's them. They take over. They go from there. And then we go on to the next. So it's kind of, it's not downplayed, but it's kind of overlooked because once you, once you dispatch your department to the call and you're on to the next call, you don't have a chance to recuperate because it's on to the next. 
I know you guys in law enforcement don't have much time to recuperate either. It's not like you can go through a big incident and go back to your car and kind of have a debrief. You got to drive away. You got to get your stuff done. Uh, but it's back to back to back with dispatchers. And there's really no time to think about what you just went through because you're already on to the next. So I got caught up with not really decompressing what had happened in my mind. My body forgot about it. My conscious mind kind of forgot about it, but my subconscious and unconscious mind did not. And after nine, 10 years, it just came through and just leveled me. And retroactively, all the past, just dealing with years and years of just seeing humanity at its worst, just caught up, took its toll. And it was a bad, bad feeling. Very bad. And it's, you're, I mean, you're right. We, we often overlook in the first responder community. And I can speak from experience speaking for me that you just, while we had, we where the agency I worked at, we had dispatchers that worked with us because my agency used to self-dispatch years and years ago. Then we tied into the County. So uh, I worked in the same County as you, Craig. So you would dispatch our calls, but we still, as a police department, we still maintained our dispatchers and they f- were assigned to each squad and they would do more local administrative stuff. But, um, so I always say like in-house, man, it's amazing what our dispatchers do. They're working shift work with us. They're doing weekends and holidays. They're doing the same thing. And they're not even really taking calls and dispatching and listening to victims and, and, and witnesses. So it, it's unheralded un, un, and often overlooked what everybody who works in telecommunications, emergency telecommunications goes through. We just, I think we forget about it. And I, and I appreciate you highlighting that. Well, I mean, I, I don't think it's purposely forgotten about. I don't think it's a machismo thing like, oh, we have the guns and we're in the field and you guys are behind a death. I don't think it has anything to do about that. It just has to do with when you're out there facing whatever adversity you're facing, whatever call you're on, you're not thinking about the guy, the girl, the guys, the girls back in the room. You're just not thinking about them. Right. Out of sight, and, out of mind. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Out of sight, out of mind. You're dealing with what incident is in front of your face right now. And that's just human nature. That's just natural. Um, you know. It's you, you have conversations with other dispatchers, call takers in general, everybody that works at the 911 center. I mean, do you guys talk about mental health and stress and burnout and are these conversations that, you know, either leadership, you know, brings up so you guys can talk about, or you guys talk amongst yourselves? Getting better. When I first joined, when I first joined and when I first started working, I thought in order to get a SISM call out for an incident that I was on, it had to be like three burning buildings with two downed officers holding five dead babies. And then it's like, they're going to activate 150 people just for me. I didn't want to do that. Like, no, 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 no. It wasn't really explained to me. I had no idea what it was. I didn't know that I could go and speak with a peer if I had a really tough time or a really tough call or a really tough string of calls that I could sit down with you, Chad, or you, Ryan, or somebody else that was on the team and they could kind of mentor me, guide me through most importantly, I think, let me know that I'm not alone. Uh, towards when I got to my burnout stage, I thought I was weird, strange. I looked around to all my people that I was working with for various amount of years who have various amount of experience that weren't going through what I was going through or weren't talking about what I was talking about. So I, I was alone. What is wrong with me? Uh, they helped me lead. They led me to understand that it's all across all fields. It's across all disciplines and it's not a sign of weakness. It's not a sign that you can't hang or the job's not for you. Uh, It's just, you reached your limit. Now it's time to 
empty your glass and refill it with more positive energy. I mean, it's it goes deeper than that, but that's the best analogy that I can use in a pinch. So yeah. what made you realize that, you know, what was it that, what point did you hit that you said, you know what, I need to, I need to do something here to take care of what I'm feeling? Well, I didn't really, I didn't realize it, it's difficult. You know, you go from, you go from taking minute calls and just being sitting in the run of the mill when you're just answering 911 calls where it's a noise complaint, it's a noise complaint, it's a meet the complainant. But then you run into a string of having to do CPR calls on people. Um, what you can tell whenever there's a bad batch of heroin or fentanyl going around because you're just doing CPR all throughout the county. Oh, yeah. And they're not normal type CPR calls, not 75 plus years old. They're in their 20s. They're in their 30s. You have moms and dads and significant others screaming and begging you to save their individual over the phone where, I mean... And there's some places where it's so close to the center that I could jump in my car and get there before any first responders and start before they can. But it's the frustration of not being, for me, not being able to act, not being able to do anything, being able to, the only tool that I have is my voice and my command through the phone to instruct these individuals to do the best job that they can do. And the frustration of me not being able to do anything physically, um, that builds up. Um, child callers and um, jobs with children really uh, unearth and stack up. I don't know if it's the same thing with you guys in the field, but on my end, um, I took kind of a critical call where it had to deal with a 13-year-old boy. And at the time, my oldest son was 13 years old. So that was my son on the call that I was working on with the parents to get through. I couldn't get that out of my mind that everything I was doing on that call was going to, was doing it for my own son at that age, um, just directed right, right to there. I'm not sure if that happens to you guys when you guys are in the field. Yeah. But yeah, that's not very, I, uh, I had a very similar experience that, you know, with a critical incident with a child and, my child was the same age. I don't know if I talked about it on the show, but actually got home that morning and my son was, had been wearing the same color pajamas that the, the, uh, the boy that we're on the critical incident was wearing. And yeah, it's, it's, it's not easy. Yeah. Yeah. I had a, didn't involve me directly, but I had somebody really close to me. Uh, actually it was a SISM call out, but it was my agency where I worked at. So uh, of course I knew everybody. And it was a, a third, I think it was 13 um, child, perfectly healthy, um, no issues whatsoever, just passed away in his sleep. And he was the only child on top of that. So mom and dad woke up in the morning. It was like a Saturday or something and found him unresponsive in his bed and called 911. And he was, he died in his sleep talking to the cops. What really struck out to them was the screams of the mom. They couldn't stop you know, the child was dead, obviously. And, and uh, one, one of the cops had a 13 year old son. So that was hard for him. But what more what stuck out more to him that's different for all of us is the screams of the mom, he remembers getting there and, and her, you know, just audible sounds and laying on the floor in the fetal position and the things she was saying and the tone of her voice, and the yelling and the screaming. He said, I went home and I still heard her voice in my head. So it's primal. It's guttural. It's primal. It doesn't get any more raw or real than that when a when a parent loses a child. And that's why I love your guys' show. We can sit here and we can talk about this openly. We can talk about feelings and we can talk about 
you break down the machismo stigma of, you know, suck it up, buttercup and move on and all that. And dispatch, police, fire, EMS, that has to stop, um, period, because that's just not the right answer. You need forums like this. You need larger forums, more than just three guys or whoever ends up watching, talking about these tough issues if we ever, you know, want to move on. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I, and, and I appreciate you saying that because that's the whole goal of the show is to break down those those barriers and stereotypes. And I had a leader once uh, when we talked about SISM and calling out. And, you know, I also recommended to this leader, hey, some of these officers are really struggling. I think they'd really appreciate if you as the leader would call them and reach out to them. And his response was, it was a weekend. His response was, I trained you guys well enough to not need me when things like this happen. A leader, a leader said that. Well, well, no, I'd like to correct that, Chad, though. That's not a leader. That's someone in a leadership position. (laughs) Right, right. But that's not what a leader does. That's not what a leader says. Blown away. Have you run into that? Leaders like that have that view with mental health? Oh, absolutely. I try to break it down and I try to figure why people act like that. Why people, how, how can someone in a leadership position take the angle of unresponsibility? when it comes to their individuals. Maybe it's because as they were rising through the ranks, they didn't have it. And maybe it's kind of out of spite. Maybe they don't know any better. But leadership is actions. It's not a title. And if people chase leadership because of the title and because of the accolades it brings, they're chasing it for the wrong reason. And they're not helping the people under them. Uh, True leaders understand that regardless of what forum you're in it's all about the people that you're leading and the people under you if they're not successful you're not successful and that's that could be the manager of a retail store it could be a police department a dispatch center it doesn't matter um you're only as good as your leaders you're only as strong as your leaders and a lot of agencies unfortunately just don't have good leaders well that's one thing chad and i always touch on and and even so many people all across the country that I talk to see that so do, do you see anything or what what do you think causes you know the 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 failure of leadership to be so broad across law enforcement in in that you know so so many people make their way into leadership but it seems as though they're more chasing the title than actually wanting to serve the people that work for them I think it comes. I think it comes down to a few things. Um, if you stay long enough, you could gain leadership. What you pass a test, maybe survive long enough to be promoted up because you're the oldest person on the block. Um, it's a tough question. It's it's really tough to answer because I think there's so many different dynamics and so many moving parts. You can't just narrow it down to one thing. Right. Uh, I know Chad and I have talked in the past where it becomes political in certain aspects in certain realms to where you play more of a a political role with your reach so far out to the community and different sectors that you become more politician than you do say chief or leader. Uh, Your focus goes so far out that you forget that, you know, you need to take care of the people right right in your own building, not so much the rest of the community, the rest of the neighborhood and things of that nature. Yeah, that, it's that's hard. the one thing I've noticed, Craig, is is 
like you said, there's a lot of different reasons, but the common themes I've seen from executives that are bad leaders are they started to realize, or they started to improperly put their, their, uh, merits on pleasing the people above them, their elected officials, the mayor, whoever it is they report to, because that is those are the bodies that regulate their next contract or regulate their, their salary. So they start to flip and prioritize that when they realize their only role is to take care of the men and women that are taking care of the community. I mean, that's what an executive does. Obviously, they have other things, they're visionaries and they're budget conscious. But from a leadership perspective, leading human beings, they it starts to flip and a lot of them lose sight along the way, even though they were probably good as younger officers, they lose that, whether they go back in the office and they forget what it was like to be a street cop or whatever, they, they start to cater to the people above them instead of that's who directs them and gives them mandates. Great. And we have to satisfy those, but really what leaders should be concerned with are the morale, welfare and performance of their officers and whether they're supporting the community. It's not about the leader. It's about the men and women. The leader kind of should be always in the background, but Sometimes they flip it and you see a lot of these executives that are on the front of social media. They're the one making videos and posts about them and what they're doing. And it just, it gets a little muddy along the way. Well, I think when you go and you start appeasing the people above you, well, you have to, right? They, they give you mandates. They set the standards. You have to meet those goals. But when you put all, all power forward, hundred percent to go above and beyond all that, what you don't realize is, is you're dragging your men and women behind you in the wake. And it doesn't matter what they like. It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter how they feel. They're coming along for the ride, like it or not. It, it just turns into a bad situation. I, I learned very long ago that, very long ago, the, the Army is what taught me. I had, I had a staff sergeant that was our uh, squad leader at, and, at the time. And this guy, this, this man, uh, demanded perfection from us. Demanded perfection from us. Because we're not talking about cutting up sandwiches or, or selling cars. You know, when you're put in a combat, you need perfection if you want to go home. So he did, not only did he demand perfection from us, but when we came through, he followed through. If we, if we didn't follow through in, in a training circumstance of that nature, we got smoked. And But while he's smoking us, he's telling us why, why we're in this situation. Because... Now you're not going home and the guy to your left and right aren't going home. So do more push-ups, crawl some more, do this, do that. But that just, when he told us why we were doing what we were doing and why we were doing it, it just made us want to try that much harder. And then when we succeeded, it was party time. He took care of us. He let us know that he appreciated us. And he kind of set the gold standard for what I thought a leader was. And that's how I tried to mold myself around it's not always just do this because I'm shaking my finger and telling you to do it, but why? And where, how can it benefit us all? And that's great, man. That is it, huge. There, there's, there's not a lot of people like that. I get not chills when you told that story because, uh, you know, that, that's my experience when I was in the Army Infantry was people like that. I, get, I still get I'm all fired up right now you told that story because, <laughs> because it, it blows my mind and, and I'm going to get a little emotional for a second, but when and and I was telling I forget who I was telling somebody about this, but when you work for people like that, and then you come into an opposite situation where the leader is self-serving, they don't live virtuously, they're not guided by values, they're more political-minded. When you have both experiences, that dichotomy is so big, I couldn't get past it. I stopped being able to be able to function and do my job as a cop because I'm looking at what's going on around me, and I'm like, this is wrong. 
This is it's wrong. It, it's messed yep. up. Everything yep. about this is wrong. Nobody seems to be paying attention. Maybe the elected officials don't know it's wrong because they only have a certain perspective inside the agency. But everything we're doing is wrong. The leadership is wrong. We're promoting the wrong people. We're self-serve. I mean, everything was so wrong. And I had that experience and I said, I, I got to go. I got, I have to go. If I'm going to survive, I only hit 13 years. I have to leave. I can't physically and mentally watch what's going on here with this agency as sad as it was. Um, and so I, th I like how you brought that up because when you work for somebody like that, it changes everything. I mean, that, they set the example for you. It, <laughs> is, it a, is it a blessing or a curse? Um, because it is such a wide margin. It's such a wide gap. It's night and day. It really is. And I hate to say that other leaders um, pale in comparison or fail because they're not to that extreme or that extent. But that's just like saying in the military that all leaders are great too, because that's where my critique of leadership started in the military. After going through that squad leader and, and having that tutelage of that staff sergeant uh, guide me, it started there and then. And then it went from the, every, um, whether it be platoon sergeant, first sergeant moving forward till I was out of the army to every manager, assistant manager and every job that I had moving forward, kind of doing that. And you do find others that have similar aspects and or similar qualities or have the potential to be that type of leader. And that's always a good thing to have. And that's always great, but few and far in between. And it really is a shame. I, I don't know who taught him. Who taught him to be such a great leader? How did he become such a great leader? Probably because he was involved in conflict. He, uh, he, he had fought, I think, uh, back in the, uh, both Persian Gulf Wars. So he had real world experience. He had real life uh, implications. And he, this is what he's going to do moving forward. And it resonated with so many people. Hopefully it infected those of us that are still around to where they can embrace that as well and be good leaders, but good leaders birth good leaders. I'll take and it a step further. Turn, I'll yeah. take it a step further, Craig. I, I he's probably, um, when I, my, my consensus is when you have a great leader, they're also great people. I haven't seen too many people that are great leaders and are not good people. I haven't seen it actually. So leadership is less about, uh, this is why I, I, I believe leaders can learn. You can send them the training. They can get better. But you also have to be a good person. You have to be selfless-minded uh, in your pursuit of, and you said this, the why. You know, We have to understand what the mission is and get people on board. There's two types of power. There's influence and there's authority. You're going to do it because I tell you to do it. That's authority. Or influence is, Craig, we got to get this done, brother. We're going to do it together. We're going to get this mission done. Here's why we're doing it. Here's what we have to get it done. Let's get it done together. Right? That's influence. I said the same thing to you, but without having to order you to do it. It's just easier. A lot of people are like, just do, just do it. Here's a memo. Here's an email. Get this done and come back to me when it's done. It's easy, right? It's hard to be immersive and, and selfless and team-oriented to curry influence. That takes effort. That takes intention. That takes time. Uh, to build those relationships. And I just think, um, yeah, I mean, I think you have to be a good person to start. You can learn those things. Um, but what I saw in law enforcement, even when you, could you mention some of these great leaders? We, I mean, when you see them out there, we have them in the profession now and they're not getting promoted because they're not playing the political game because they're calling out improper behavior or they're leading, setting an example as making the leader above them who's the size of promotion makes them look bad. So they don't want to keep looking bad. So um, yeah, I mean, that's the whole system has a kind of an issue we have to work through. That that's a real that's a really good point. 
there, it, it also comes down to an individual basis. Not everyone is a leader. Not everyone is meant to lead. There's a lot of followers out there. There's a lot of good followers. You tell X, Y, and Z to get something done, they're on it. They get it done. I mean, no, no questions asked. But what happens when that individual rises to the ranks, doesn't rock any boats, and now that person becomes a leader? What happens when you have a follower become a leader? Maybe they like the power. Maybe they like the money. Maybe they like it. The funny thing about the Army was um, I was around a corporal rank, and my first sergeant used to smoke me out all the time. When are you going to PLDC? When are you going to get? When are you going to become a sergeant? When are you going to? Be, I'm, I'm not first sergeant. Drop, you know, push-ups. I was a master of push-ups from this guy. Because why? Why don't you want to be? So one day he takes me aside and says, "Why don't you want to become an NCO?" And I said, "Because where I am right now, I already know the job of three ranks above me, and I know the whole entire system around me. Why do I want more stress and more responsibility for a little bit more pay?" When I'm perfectly fine where I am right now. I don't plan on making a life of this, but I'm comfortable, I'm competent, and he would just make me, it would just infuriate him that I didn't want to do that. But I felt that if I kept taking the jump, that that's how they would keep reeling me in and reeling me in and reeling me in. And then the next thing you know, it'd be 30 years later, I have a bad back, bad knees, like I don't now, right? But um, it's just something within me where, and maybe that's a fault of mine. Maybe I should have taken that jump and been a good leader because I could have inspired. I could have done other done other things. But for some reason, the, the calling just I knew what I knew. I knew what I knew was correct. And maybe it's like what you said, the guys that should be leaders typically don't step up and get promoted. Um, maybe that kind of resonates with them in a way like for what a little more money or but a lot more stress, a lot more responsibility. Sometimes it's just not worth it. So let's take a look at, and you mentioned it kind of before we came on on the show quickly, and that is being a peer leader. How important do you think how you carry yourself in your rank and in what you do can express and can, as it expresses leadership to the people that you work with, even though you might not have that title? You have to lead by example. And you don't need a title to be a leader. And oftentimes, through no fault of their own, when something goes wrong in the room, leadership doesn't even know about it. They're in the back office or they're at a different conference or they're somewhere else. So do we just, what, all break down until somebody comes back and instructs us what to do? No, you got to take care of the situation. The fires need to be put out right there. And that's whether or not it's consoling the fellow dispatcher next to you, and making sure that your field users are okay on a critical call, or if you notice signs of either people breaking down, crying, um, running out of the room all of a sudden, just, you know, not like them, you know, these, you got to kind of pay attention to your surroundings and you got to put these fires out as they come up. Because if they don't, you potentially lose a good coworker due to depression, turnover, um, re resign, resigning, and just giving up the post because they don't, they don't, you know, why, why am I putting myself through this? The, the professions of, of first responders, the most successful people, it's not just a job, it's a calling. And it's it, it, a calling, and I'm sure both of you have had it at one point, especially with your careers, but it's not something you just wake up and put the boots on and say, here I go. It's, um, it, it just, it's a central, it's a it's central part in you that drives you and makes you do what you do. 
And that goes above beyond that goes above and beyond good, bad, discipline, um, bumps, uh, ups and downs, peaks and valleys and all of that. You just you see it through because you have that feeling of, of pulling you in. Right. It's not easy. It's, it's not easy. And retention shows that very, very poor. So, Craig, what uh, what are you doing now? Like you're on the system team. You're you're, you're giving back to an organization that helped you. So what, what are the latest things going on in your life now? Which, what are you up to? Uh, I'm on standby. Uh, anytime my phone rings, um, I take a look and assess what I'm doing. If I'm locked in at work, of course, I can't jump out right there. But if it's on my free time, my family, my wife is extremely understanding of what I do and what my calling is. And it's kind of funny because when I first started with the SISM team, they were like, well, we have a few dispatchers that we can, you know, you can assist. I, said, I want more. I want more than just dispatch. I want to talk to officers. I want to talk to firefighters. I want to talk to EMTs. But you're not a cop. It doesn't matter. I don't need to be a cop to talk to a cop. Well, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. So I had to build myself up and go as assist on a lot of different things and, and learn the ropes and take a look around. But the one thing that I find that has made me the most successful, especially with SISM, is if you if you take away, you're, you're there for a reason. You're, you're not there to celebrate and high five. You're, you're there because someone just witnessed something that could potentially put them in a very dark place. And what you need to do is you need to drop the badge, drop the gun, drop the, the axe and the fire hose, drop the, the paddles and the ambulance, and drop all the titles and rank and address the, the hurting human that is sitting in the room with you. If you could talk to people like they're humans, regardless of what their rank or structure is, that's what sets me up for the best success. I'm not intimidated to talk to an officer or a firefighter. I've never run into a burning building. I've never strapped on a law enforcement vest and performed a traffic stop. That doesn't mean that I can't talk to this individual who just witnessed a horrific human incident and talk to them about how it is because I don't want them to go down that path that I went down. Mm. Never, never that. That's, that's huge, man. I, I, I love how you said that too. You don't want to see others go down the path that, that you had to go down and experience. And that, uh, that definitely explains the calling. Oh yeah. Yeah. Huge, huge. Because there's that machos. There's so many different stigmas and they're all bad. Chad and Ryan, and they're mm -hmm. not good at all. It's the machismo stigma. It's the uh, solo stigma. It's the cops only talk to cops stigma. The firefighters only talk to firefighters. There's, I want to just stigma bash, be a wrecking ball and just break through them all because it's bullshit. I can't even think of a different, a better word. It's bullshit. It's old. <laughs> it's agree. dated. And we're never going to get better. And our numbers are never going to turn for the better until we start breaking these stigmas and start doing what we're doing right now on a wider scale. 500 little, little boxes on the Zoom meeting in front of us is what we need to where we all buy into the system and we right. all try to get better. Love it. Love it. So Craig, how, how would, um, you know, how would our listeners go about finding out, you know, say they've experienced something and they might not have the resources. How, how would our listeners go about finding a local connection to their SISM team? Not every place has a SISM team. Um, I think uh, here in Montgomery County, Chad, um, there's a, there's a lot of core individuals in that team that have found this calling. And I think that 
our departments, regardless of whether they know it or not, are very fortunate to have some of these core individuals of this SISM team to be able at, you know, at their beck and call should bad things go down. Yeah, um, and not every would, county has that, you're right. No, and I would put our team in Montgomery County against any team nationwide, pound for pound, to help any kind of department or any first responder, regardless of how many, regardless of type or field or what title it is. Ryan, to answer your question, the first step is to reach out. Um, I went through EAP and it really did not impress me. And I get that through a lot of people. EAP is just a waiting service to get you in line with a professional that maybe understands. Maybe you get lucky. Maybe you get somebody that understands veteran or first responder. There's not a lot out there. So the next thing you know, you're sitting next to a family therapist telling them what you're, what you're experiencing. And they're just psychoanalyzing you, nodding their head. You don't need that right then and there. That's right down the line. But what you need is uh, someone in our position, someone that knows exactly what you're going through saying, this sucks. You're not weird. You're not alone. And we're going to get through it. You got to reach out. You got to reach out. Um, your support, um, your boss. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that your, your show is watched by people in the first response field. I don't think many uh, retail workers would appeal to this. Maybe I'm wrong. No, so reach right. out to somebody and let them know <laughs> whether it be a peer or whether it be your, your boss or your, your supervisor, let them know that you're having a tough time. And hope that their stigma isn't in your department, that if you speak up that you're having a tough time, then you lose your badge and your gun and the thing that you love, and which is another stigma. I can't say that I'm weak because if I show weakness, my career is done. It's terrible. Yeah. I didn't answer your question, Ryan. Um, how do you do it? No, no, that was good. I think, I think it's part. I think that's part of it. There's really no avenue to do it. Who's stepping up and saying that we do jobs that 90% of humans don't want to do? When the building's burning, we're running in. When the bad guy's coming at us with guns, we're going at them. And when the population is calling with all of us bad things, we're the ones answering the phone. Nobody wants to do that job, but we do it. Okay, now that we do it, things are going to go wrong. We're messed up. So now that we accept that we're messed up, we can own it. We can start to heal and get better from it. It's just a different stressor than, say, working retail or working at a pizza shop. Different stressor, different avenue. And that means that we have to handle ourselves differently. We have to treat ourselves differently. Just, we're not there yet. Absolutely, man. I, I love the passion that came out at the end there, Craig. You know, I can tell you, tell you get some passion towards towards the whole the whole situation and especially what you do and how important it is for for everyone to have access to this as well. You have to. In today's climate, in today's day and age where officers are vilified and everyone's got phones and everybody wants to sue everyone for doing everything. I, I don't want to become a cop right now. I don't want to go out and do that. Why? So you can film me and then bring me up and uh, it, it's terrible. And I know that I, I know that I took talk to Chad, uh, the whole Minnesota thing with George Floyd and Chauvin. If they had a great SISM team, if I was on that SISM team, would that have happened? 
I, I, I don't know. I would like to say no, because I would have been able to interact with, the, with that department, with those people, and maybe helped in some way. But I would love to know what their support structure was out there and be able to break that down and see if there was one or at all. And I just think that I, I heard an officer say one time that when he talked to a group of students, he, he went up in full uniform and he said, do you know what my favorite tool is? Kids are like, the taser, the gun, this, that. He goes, no, the radio. And he goes, because if I'm in trouble, I can get a lot more backup on me or I got somebody there all times to make sure that I'm okay to talk to, to be able to let them know what's going on. And it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. But the SISM, the, the critical incident stress management team is like another tool on your belt. And it's not there yet. It's not on all departments belts. It's not, you know, body cams. Some departments have them, some departments don't, but it's starting to become more common across the border. Well, a good support structure team, like a SISM team or some, some type of back, back room team needs to become just as important as the sidearm or the body cam or something like that. Because once your guys and girls go through it, there needs to be something for them on the other end other than just a drop. Yeah, for sure. Craig, brother, it was an honor to have you all, man. Oh, Thank it's you great so to be much. here. I love yeah. it. You great. You gave so much great insight and information to what people are doing every day in public safety. It doesn't have to be just cops or fire. It's it's emergency telecommunications, your experience in the SISM team. There's so many people that play a role in public safety and mental health advocacy. And, and uh, man, thank you for everything you do. We appreciate it. Thank yeah. you guys for what you do. Thanks for coming on. And Craig, Craig, before we wrap things up, I always yes, have sir. my favorite thing I like to do with our guests. And uh, I'm a big reader. I'm always looking to share books and book ideas. So if you're a reader, what's a, what's a book that you would recommend for our listeners to check out? Green Eggs and Ham by Dr. Seuss. <laughs> it's short, it's sweet, it rhymes, and it makes you laugh. <laughs> Beautiful. As a, uh I haven't, I haven't been uh, much up on my reading as of late. Um, it's been basically a lot of kids' books to my children, so that's where I go with that. But what I do recommend is anything that makes you laugh and anything that's comedy-related, uh, regardless of whether you're into it or not or if that's your favorite genre. The, what I've learned through my life is that laughter is one of the best medicines as well as humor. And as long as you have humor and as long as you have laughter, you have a chance to recover. Yeah, brother. That is beautiful, Craig. Oh. Craig, thank you so much for coming on, man. I really enjoyed our conversation today and um, it, it, it was great. I appreciate it. Not a problem. Anytime. Thank you guys very much for having me. Thank you for your time today. The best of you, buddy. Take care. See ya.